Good morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, if they're not already turned there, and turn to Psalm 119, verse 176. Psalm 119 is the longest of the Psalms in Scripture. 176 verses. You're probably glad I'm not going to do what Mark Dever did one time and read the entire psalm before he preached. Uh, That takes a little time to do that. I do want to begin by just um, bringing greetings from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento. Uh, It is a great blessing to have a partnership with you and ministering here in the city of Sacramento. I also want to send greetings from Reformed Baptist Seminary, where I serve as the dean. Um, And we want to express our gratitude to this church. You're one of our churches that support us, that pray for us. Uh, In fact, we have the privilege of having one of your members as a student. Jason, are you here this morning? Jason, can he? Okay, he's studying. (laughs) No wonder how, it must be how he gets his work done so quickly. Anyway, it's good to be here. It's good to see David as well back there, my motorcycle riding buddy. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So before I read this passage one more time and we start, let me just pray and ask for God's help. Lord God, we thank you for your word, which is a light to our feet, a lamp to our way. We pray that you'd help us to understand it better this morning and to apply this particular passage of scripture to our own hearts and lives and also to apply it uh, as a congregation. And we ask you, Father, to be pleased by the presentation of your word this morning, and also that you might increase our joy and our happiness in you. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the, I think, best means of edification and helps towards godliness is reading Christian biographies. I remember as a new Christian uh, reading the biography of Jim Elliot and how stirring uh, his example was to me. I remember later on reading the biographies of Jonathan Edwards, um, Elizabeth Kuhn, missionary to China, George Whitfield. Um, And I'm sure that if I were to ask you this morning, many of you can point to biographies that you've read uh, and been stirred by and motivated to serve God through. So Christian biographies can be a great means of grace, and yet the benefits of biographies are not free from potential dangers. One danger that comes to my mind is the danger of developing an unrealistic view of the Christian Life, Because oftentimes, biographers will maximize the virtues of those about whom they're writing and sometimes minimize their faults. Now, of course, we can understand this to some degree. We obviously want to view other Christians in the best light. We want to give them the benefit of the doubt. We want to emphasize their faithfulness to God. Indeed, it is that faithfulness that is often what encourages us and motivates us. But it's also possible to come away from reading many biographies with an unrealistic view of the Christian life. We can come away with the idea that Christians rarely, if ever, sin. Or, if we do read in these biographies, Uh, about certain faults or sins of these great Christian men and women, we sometimes feel that they're somewhat small or maybe even minor or trivial. For example, the biographer might say, well, he was a little too radical for God or she was too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And so to us, as we read those things, we say, well, you know, that doesn't sound like too bad of a sin. I wish I had more of that. Well, thankfully, the Bible, the writers of Scripture, do not make that mistake. That is, while they extol the virtues of the saints in Scripture, they also expose their sins. And so you and I can read about, for example, Noah 
uh, or Abraham or Moses or David and Peter and come away uh, with the assurance that indeed these were godly, eminent saints of God. They, they served the Lord with great zeal and passion. Their lives, in many respects, are worthy of our imitation. And yet, the Bible doesn't hesitate to present the other side of the story. And though it portrays these men, and many times in, in some cases women of the scriptures, as imminent saints, it also portrays them as sinners. Not just sinners before their conversion, but even as sinners after their conversion. And friends, that reality is nowhere more concisely stated than in this verse, verse 176 of Psalm 119. Again, we read this together. The psalmist says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandment. This one text of Scripture unfolds the experience of a genuine believer. And its message for you and me today is very simple. Genuine saints are still sinners. And that's the title of my message. If I spoke Latin like Martin Luther, I might say, Simil Hustus et Peccator, which, being translated, is the saint is simultaneously a sinner. Now, before I open up this theme, I want to clarify my aim and goal. And I want to say, first of all, what it is not. And this is very important for you to get down. Okay, so if you're taking notes, the title, Genuine Saints Are Still Sinners, why am I speaking on this topic? Well, first of all, I want you to know why I'm not speaking on this topic. I'm not trying to furnish a backslidden Christian with an excuse to continue in sin. All right, so uh, don't come away from this message thinking, well, he said that true Christians can sin, and so therefore I get to continue in my sin. That's not the point. And if you're thinking that way, you're not thinking like a true Christian. All right, nor am I trying to foster a critical and cynical attitude towards one another. I don't want you to leave this place looking at one another with sort of a skeptical, cynical attitude. Oh, I thought he was godly, but now I know different. He's a little scandal. He's a, he, he's a, a scoundrel or a, uh, something else. Okay, I don't want to do that. All right? Here's my purpose, and I think this is the psalmist's purpose as well. Two things. Number one, I hope this message will encourage the true believer who is striving to live a god pleasing life. In other words, I want this to be an encouragement to you this morning. If you're a Christian who's struggling against sin, and I want it to be an encouragement because I'm convinced that an unrealistic view of the Christian life is often at the root of a defective character, a defective worship, and a defective service for God. And so if we're to live a victorious life, we always have to bring our perspectives, including our perspective of the Christian life, in line with Scripture. The Bible teaches that Christians still commit sin. That's an undeniable reality. And if we don't remember that, and if we give in to the accusations of the devil, we can often sink in despair and in despondency. All right? So, first of all, I hope to encourage the genuine believer. Secondly, I want this message to encourage us to be more patient and gracious toward one another. A church is a community of believers. And the more time that we spend time together, the easier it becomes to start noticing one another's faults and shortcomings and even our sometimes besetting sins. Isn't it the case when you first meet someone, you go over their house and you sit down with their family and they say grace and maybe have family devotions and you get to know them a little while and you say, wow, what a godly family, what a godly individual. I want to be like them. But the more time you spend with them, 
pretty soon you start saying, oh, well, uh, I guess I had too rosy a picture of that individual. And so sometimes as a result, when you start hanging around people long enough and you start seeing their weaknesses and faults and besetting sins, you can develop, unfortunately, a hypercritical attitude. And such a hypercritical attitude can hinder the unity and growth of a church, okay, to the point where that's all you see. You forget about their virtues. You forget about their love for the Lord. You only see what they do wrong. That's not healthy. And so I want, therefore, this morning to encourage you as a body. I want to encourage all the members of the church to have a realistic view of the Christian life, which will in turn help you to have a gracious and patient disposition towards one another. So that's my aim and focus. And I want to unfold our text, therefore, under the following three headings. Young people, if you're taking notes, very simple, three points. First, an honest confession. Secondly, an urgent petition. And then thirdly, a bold argument. Okay? I don't mean argument in the bad sense, but in a good sense, all right? So first of all, then, an honest confession. And really, we're just breaking up the parts of this verse, which I think can be divided into three parts. Notice with me the first line. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. That's what I'm calling an honest confession. Now, the question is, what precisely is the psalmist saying? Well, the Bible, and in fact the Psalms in particular, often use the imagery of a stray sheep in order to depict an individual who's fallen into sin. Many of you are familiar with the 53rd chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, where in verse 6 the prophet uses this precise language describing himself and the people of Israel. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And we know that he's talking about sin in that context because he goes on to say, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And iniquity is just another term in the scripture for sin. And so going astray like a lost sheep is sinning. It's, it's moving away from the paths of righteousness revealed in Scripture. And that's what the psalmist has in mind when he makes this confession before God. And I would suggest to you that he's not just confessing in some sort of generic way that he's a sinner. He's not just saying, well, you know, I'm a Calvinist, and I've got good theology, and I know that I'm depraved, and so on, so I have to make this confession. No, he's probably thinking at this point of particular sins. Okay? Maybe he lost his temper. Maybe he said some unkind things to someone. Maybe he's struggling with pride. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's covetousness. We don't know precisely what it is, but when he makes this confession, when he says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep, he's thinking about particular areas of sin in his life. And that raises then another question. Who is this man who's making this confession? Well, as you know, many of the Psalms were written by King David, all right? So if you open up a commentary, oftentimes commentators will suggest that perhaps this Psalm was written by David. Thankfully, many of the Psalms have uh, begin with a, a sort of a title which has the author identified, a Psalm of David or a Psalm of the Sons of Korah or something like this. Unfortunately, in the case of Psalm 119, we don't have that. So we can't absolutely be sure this was written by David. It could have been. It's certainly consistent with David's theology. Uh, some commentators have suggested that maybe Daniel authored this psalm. Perhaps you've never thought of that, but after all, if you read through the whole psalm, the psalmist often alludes to uh, the ungodly around him who are persecuting him, who have no regard for God's law. And so perhaps this is Daniel in, in Babylon. But again, we just can't be sure. All right? 
Nevertheless, there are some things about the author of this psalm concerning which we can be certain. And I want to underscore some of those things for you this morning. Notice with me that whoever this, one, this man is, whoever this author is, he's a man with a fervent passion for the word of God. So if you're turned to this psalm, look quickly at verse 97. Verse 97. What does he say here? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So he's thinking about the scripture when he's talking about the law here. He's not just thinking narrowly about specific commandments, but he's using the term law synonymous with the written word of God. And he's saying, I love it. I'm passionate for it. I meditate on it day and night. Look at verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey. Many of you like sweets. It's hard to not pick up a bag of chocolate when you go to the grocery store. Or you have to put honey in your coffee or something. Well, the psalmist was that way with the word of God. He had to have it. He had a sweet tooth for scripture. Verse 127, he says, Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. The psalmist was not following the stock market every morning. Instead, he was turning to Scripture. That was more important to him. That was his priority. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. It's like treasure to him, the Scriptures. So what kind of a man is this? This is a man with a fervent passion for God's word. As one commentator says, the prominent characteristic of this psalm is a love for the word of God. And, and again, you can read it for yourself and see it. Secondly, this is a man with spiritual insight and maturity. Look at verses 98 through 100. 98 through 100. He says this, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precept. Dear friends, this was not a spiritual babe. He's not a brand new convert. He's not a novice. He was well-versed in the scriptures. He had a mature grasp of God's word. Moreover, in the third place, this is a man who made righteous resolutions. How many of you made New Year's resolutions this year? Okay, not, not very many. Hey, it's never too late, okay? You can make them late. Unfortunately, often our resolutions are sometimes confined to things like our diet or exercise or hobbies or something else like that. Uh, hopefully not confined to that. Nothing wrong with those kinds of resolutions, but hopefully we make some spiritual resolutions. Notice what the psalmist resolved. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Okay, he wanted to remember God's word all the time. And I don't think he's just talking there about retentive memory. He's not just saying, I want to be a good memorizer. But in every circumstance of life, he wanted to remember God's word and apply it. Okay? Verse 57, the Lord is my portion. Now notice what he says, I promise to keep your words. He was a man who made promises to God. Indeed, look at verse 106. I have sworn an oath and confirm it to keep your righteous rules. Dear friends, it's not wrong to make vows to God. I know sometimes we're, we want to be careful, right? We don't want to make rash vows, especially vows that are unbiblical, okay? But, but, but making vows... To serve God, to love God, those are not wrong. Now, we want, we want to take them seriously, but it's not wrong to make them. And, and the psalmist made those kinds of vows. 
And what's important for us this morning is that he's not just a man with good intentions, but he's a man to a great degree who was enabled by God's grace to carry out those intentions. He had an obedient heart in life. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. The psalmist says, I have stored up, and that word could be translated, I've treasured up. So he's, again, he's not just talking about memorizing Scripture. He's talking about loving Scripture. I've stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Listen, he was convinced that without holiness, to use the language of the writer of Hebrews, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Okay, for the psalmist, obedience to God was not optional. He believed that if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be a believer, you need to follow God's word. And so he stores it up, he treasures it in his heart. And then in verse 110, he says, The wicked have laid a snare for me. But now notice what he says, and this is striking because it stands in contrast to our passage. Verse 176. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not do what? I do not stray from your precepts. And then in verse 168, he goes on to say this. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. And that's an amazing statement. He's saying, in essence, Lord, look, I can't lie to you. All my ways are before you. Your eyes see down into the depths of my heart. You know when I say that I'm keeping your precepts, I'm not making that up. I'm not lying. I'm not being a hypocrite. And so, folks, what I want to say is that to some degree, this man truly did live a godly life. He carried out his intentions. He served God with integrity. And yet, he was a man who did not keep God's law in his own wisdom and strength. And that highlights, fifthly, that this is a man who completely depended upon the grace of God. Notice how this is brought out in verses 33 through 37. Listen to his prayer, okay? He says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. And then he asks, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. And then he pleads, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. And then he cries out to the Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And again, he prays. Turn my eyes away from, look at, uh, away from worthless things and give me life in your ways. So let's summarize what we know about this author. Number one, he passionately loves the word of God. Number two, he has a mature knowledge of God's word. Number three, he's resolved to keep it with all of his heart. Number four, to some degree, he's carried out these resolutions. And number five, He's a humble man relying upon God's grace to enable him to live a God-pleasing life. Now, let me ask you, can you ask for a better portrait of a godly saint? And yet, this godly man, the author, concludes this psalm with a confession. Isn't that striking? Look, if you and I were writing our own autobiography... Which, by the way, I think Psalm 119 sort of reads like a prayer journal. Okay? It, it, it kind of goes up and down, and good days, bad days, or whatever. But if we were to conclude our autobiography, we'd want to end it on a high note, right? On a crescendo. But instead, he ends with judgment day honesty, and he says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. So here we have a saint, a genuine saint who is still a sinner. And this is further brought out as we transition to the second part of verse 176. We've looked at the honest confession. Join me now as we look at his urgent petition. His urgent petition, young people petition. That's another word for prayer, okay? What does he pray? He prays this, very simple. Seek your servant. 
seek your servant. Basically, this is a prayer for spiritual restoration. He strayed from the paths of righteousness. He cries out to the great shepherd to rescue him. He wants forgiveness. He wants, in the language of Psalm 51, which we read this morning, the restoration of the joy of his salvation. And as he makes his petition, he's conscious of at least two realities. First, he's conscious of his need for God's intervention. He begins, seek. Look for me, Lord. Help me, God. He's not only acknowledging his wayward heart, that he's gone astray from the path of righteousness, but he confesses here that he's unable in his own strength to do anything about it. He can't find his way back. He needs God's grace. In many ways, I would say the psalmist's prayer is very analogous to a prayer uttered by the great theologian Augustine. When Augustine said, Lord, to sin, I'm able, but I am not able to return. And that's precisely what the psalmist is saying. He's not putting his confidence in his own flesh, in his own wisdom, but his trust is in the Lord, and he's absolutely convinced of his need for God's grace. But then secondly, he's also conscious, and this is amazing here, he's conscious of an abiding relationship with God. He says, seek whom? Your servant. Wait a minute. He just confessed to going astray. And yet now he's saying, yeah, that's true, Lord, but I'm still your servant. There's still this relationship. In spite of all of my knowledge, in spite of all my experience, I've fallen again into sin, he says. But I'm not going to reason from my waywardness to a wrong conclusion that I must not be a Christian. I must not be a believer. I must not be your servant. No, he doesn't conclude that. The psalmist believed it was possible to be a genuine saint and yet to still throughout his life have struggles with sin. Even though he's gone astray, he's conscious of this relationship that he sustains with God. I'm still your servant, Lord. Seek me. May I say, just by way of application, this is one of the main differences between the believer and the unbeliever. Okay? The unbeliever is like the person who is uh, he's a lawbreaker, right? He's always getting in trouble with the law. He's in jail a lot and so on. And so every time he passes a police car, what's he do? He looks in his rearview mirror and he gets nervous, right? He's going to get caught. But the believer instead is more like the wayward child who even though he knows he's done wrong, he knows that his parents still love him. They still are his parents. And that's how the believer is. The believer knows that even though he sinned against his God, his his God is still his heavenly father. There's still that filial relationship. And so we've looked at the honest confession, the urgent plea, but now turn with me to the bold argument. The bold argument. The psalmist uses the last phrase of our verse as an argument to strengthen his petition. He says, seek your servant, why? For I do not forget your commandments. So why should the Lord have mercy on this man and restore this man to passive righteousness? Answer, the psalmist says, well, because I haven't forgotten your commandments. Well, what what is he saying here? Well, let me begin by, again, highlighting what he's not saying, okay? First of all, um, he's not making contradictory statements, okay? He's not saying, uh, I've gone astray, but I haven't gone astray, okay? I'm a sinner, but I'm not a sinner. That's not what he's saying. He's not spiritually schizophrenic. Secondly, he's not weighing his good deeds with his bad deeds, He's not arguing that God should restore him because somehow his commandment-keeping outweighs his going astray. And that's the way many people reason with God. Yeah, they admit their faults. They know they have shortcomings and so on and so forth. But, but, but 
I go to church and, and I've given money to the church and um, I haven't beat up my wife or whatever, okay? Well, the psalmist's not doing that. He's not trying to say that his good deeds outweigh his bad deeds. He's not claiming that, therefore, he deserves to be restored. Nor, again, is he merely referring to retentive memory. He's not saying, Lord, I've disobeyed your word, but I still remember those Sunday school verses. I haven't forgot those. Okay? No, that's not what he's saying. Instead, I believe what the psalmist is asserting is that even though he had sinned, yet he had not apostatized and renounced the Lord and gone after false gods. And we don't have really time this morning to look at all of the various passages in the Old Testament where to forget God and his commandments is equivalent to apostasy and, and, and to uh, idolatry. But let me just read the language of one psalm which underscores this. All right, if you want to turn there, it's Psalm 44. Psalm 44. All right, Psalm 44 here, and we won't read it all. We're going to just read verses 17 through 21 where we find this language. But just to give you the context, um, the psalmist is praying for deliverance, okay? Uh, he and, the, and, and his people are being oppressed by the enemy, all right? And he's not, it's important for us to realize, as he's saying this prayer, he is not pleading sinlessness, okay? He's not saying, Lord, oh, we, we've never sinned. We don't deserve any of this. But what he is pleading is basic covenant fidelity. They haven't renounced Yahweh to serve other gods. They, they, they still believe in Yahweh as their true God. So notice how he puts this. He says, all this, that is all of this oppression of the enemy, has come upon us, though we haven't forgotten you. We have not been false to our covenant. Our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? So again, he's not claiming sinless perfection. But what he is saying is, Lord, you know we haven't completely turned our back on you. We still have faith in you. We still believe in you. You're our covenant God. I think in a similar way, the psalmist is in no way trying to deny or minimize the sin that he just confessed. To the contrary, he's honestly confessed it, and he's asked for God's forgiveness and restoration, but he still views himself as God's what? Servant. And he still views himself as in a covenant relationship with his God. And in doing so, again, this is the point of the message. The psalmist is teaching us that genuine believers, genuine saints, are still, this side of glory, sinners and in need of God's grace. Now, with that theme in view, let me just close this morning with a couple of practical observations. All right? Young people. If you're taking notes, make sure to ask mom and dad around the dinner table today, did you remember those practical points, mom and dad? And so you can write some of these down, all right? I'm sure that would delight their hearts. All right, so what does this truth call us to? Well, first of all, it calls us to a realistic view of the Christian life. As I say, if we're writing this psalm, we would have ended up uh, portraying ourselves as writing off into the spiritual sunset of perfect godliness, right? Um, but that's not the way the psalmist chooses to end. In one breath, he views himself as a sheep gone astray, as God's servant, and as a covenant keeper. In other words, he believed it was possible to have an authentic relationship with God, to have a spiritual disposition to God's word, and yet, at times to fall into sin. And I can assure you that the psalmist was not trying to excuse his sin or to find some reason to continue in sin. 
If you come away from this message this morning and you say, well, Dr. Gonzalez said I could be a Christian and sin all I want, then I think you've missed the point. The psalmist is not trying to justify what some call today the carnal Christian. He's not trying to say, well, it's okay to pray a sinner's prayer to get eternal life insurance and yet live like the devil. That's not what he's teaching. He's referring to a true believer who loves God, who loves God's word, but who struggles and sometimes even falls. He's expressing, dear friends, the same reality as the hymn writer who wrote these words, and I think Tom alluded to them this morning, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Isn't that amazing? The hymn writer says, I love God. And he's speaking the truth. And yet, because of remaining sin, at times prone to sin and to be unfaithful. And dear friends, isn't this our experience sometimes? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. The great Martin Luther. How many of you read Martin Luther's biography? Okay, a couple of you. Um, one of the biographies I read was, was a better biography because it was a little bit more realistic. Okay? It didn't gloss over some of Luther's fault. And in one place I was reading about uh, just following his famous stand at the Diet of Worms where he stood against the Pope and the Emperor. He stood upon the Word of God. Um, right after that, Luther had to go into hiding because there were people who wanted to kill him. And so for many months he spent time in the castle of Wartburg, or if you're German, Wartburg, or, you know, they pronounce it differently. Uh, but while he was in that castle, he worked on translating the Bible and writing many good Christian books. While he was in hiding, his friend Philip Melanchthon wrote a letter to him, and in this letter, Philip was praising Luther for his godliness and his great service to God. Now listen to how Luther responds to his friend Philip. So Luther writes back to Philip, and here's what he says. Philip, you elevate me too high and fall into the serious error of giving me too much credit as if I were absorbed in God's cause. This high opinion of yours confounds and racks me when I see myself insensible, hardened, sunk in idleness, alas, seldom in prayer and not venting one groan over God's church. By the way, sometimes Luther would pray three hours a day. He goes on to say, My unsubdued flesh burns me with devouring fire. In short, I, who ought to be eaten up with the Spirit of God, I'm devoured by the flesh, by luxury, by idleness, by sloth, and by sleep. Wow. He said, well, that's changed my view of Luther. Well, he was a godly man. Brothers and sisters, he did much for the cause of God. He loved God. He loved God's word. He served God faithfully in many respects. But he was just like you and me, just like the psalmist. At times, he went astray, and he had to make an honest confession to God and plead for God's intervention. I know when you and I read sometimes these honest confessions, we kind of are tempted to explain them away as uh, pious expressions of false humility, you know, uh, as if, for example, uh, you know, Steph Curry were to say, I'm a lousy basketball player. I'm really not that good. Yeah, right, Steph. Yeah, sure, sure. Or when the Apostle Paul says, more to the point, uh, I'm the chief of sinners. Yeah, right, Paul. Come on, you're not that bad. Well, dear friends, if Paul the Apostle or if Martin Luther were able to stand up here today, they would give you a realistic view of the Christian life. They would say during their earthly experience, they crowd out, cried out many times, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who should deliver me from this body of death? Not just before they were converted, not just immediately after they were converted, but all throughout their pilgrimage on this earth. And so genuine saints still commit 
Christ. And this is how Charles Bridges in his commentary on Psalm 119 ends. As he's commenting on our verse, he says, And thus will our Christian progress be checkered until we reach the regions of unmixed praise. So when we reach glory, we don't have to make confessions of sin anymore. But until then, we'll always have to confess at times to be sheep who go astray. And thus, Psalm 119 calls you and me to a realistic view of the Christian life. Secondly, it calls us to an ongoing dependence upon God's grace as we work out our salvation. And these two are obviously related. It doesn't matter how long we've been Christians, how well we know our Bible, how many resolutions we make. We never get beyond the reach of temptation and sin. That was hard for me to realize as a brand new Christian. I was converted when I was 22, went to Bible college when I was 23, and I remember I'd look at my pastor, I'd look at the Bible teachers, and I would always think to myself, man, I can't wait to be like them. No more temptation. No more sin. And a year went by, and another year, and another year, and and finally I went to my pastor and I said, hey, pastor, uh, when am I going to be free of temptation and sin? When am I going to be godly? He says, you want to be godly? And I said, oh, yeah. He says, you want to be as godly as the Apostle Paul? And I said, yeah. So he said, well, let me show you something. So he turned me to 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8. You remember, that's Paul's last letter. At the end of his life, he's writing to his protege, Timothy, um, while he's in jail. And as Paul anticipates his departure from this life, he says this to Timothy. Listen to these words. He says, I have fought the good fight. Now, do you, do you know the difference between just a, an aorist past tense and a perfect past tense? All right. Uh, in one case, it's, it's kind of an action that took place in the past and it's over. Okay? But a perfect uh, past tense is, is something that took place in the past but continues into the present. And that's what Paul's saying here. I have fought the good fight, Timothy, meaning... I I started fighting that fight when I first became a Christian, and I've been fighting it all the way up until now. I have finished the course, Timothy. I started it back then. I've been running it all the way up into this point, and I'm about to finish. I have kept the faith. Same idea. I, I embraced the faith when I was converted, and I'm still holding on and embracing it now. And then Paul goes on to say, henceforth, There's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and he goes on to say, and also for all those who hope for Christ's appearing. And then the pastor said to me, Bob, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're going to be fighting the good fight until you breathe your last breath. Now, that might seem to be a bit discouraging for someone who was hoping to be free of temptation, but actually it wasn't. It was refreshing. It was actually encouraging to know that, wow, I mean, uh, this is not abnormal. Uh, Paul still struggled. Paul still had to confess. Paul still had to seek God's grace. And dear friends, that realization is what then prompted me to be more dependent upon God's grace and more frequently confess my sin and look to God for help. My Experience as a pastor, as a pastor for about 16 years, has taught me that uh, we have an easier time uh, doing this with ourselves than with one another. In other words, what I mean is this. um, When our sins are in view, sometimes we want other people to look at them in the best light, right? Our struggles, our our weaknesses, our shortcomings. Uh, However... When one of our brothers and sisters sins against us, okay, and and maybe it's the very thing that we've done before, we can tend to look at it more negatively. That's terrible what he did to me. Oh, how could he do such a thing? I don't even know if he's a true Christian. Parents, have we ever responded this way to our children? Your child makes a profession of faith and but there's some 
pattern of sin in his life, and you just say, well, I don't need to see how you could be a Christian. You're probably not a Christian. Well, that may be. But it doesn't help when we get exasperated and fly off the handle when they go astray. But then when we expect our children to overlook our sins and inconsistencies, that's not good. I'm not suggesting we lower God's standard for holiness. I'm simply urging us that we remember to be more gracious towards others even as we want them to be gracious towards us. To remember this psalm that it's possible for a genuine God-fearing, God-loving believer to have inconsistencies and at times even to go astray. But then beyond that, Psalm 119, verse 176, and I'll close with this. It invites all sinners to come to God's throne of grace in their time of need. As a part of God's special revelation, Psalm 119 not only teaches us what God requires of us, but it also tells us what God is like. And verse 176 is telling us that God is very gracious, kind, and merciful. God is in the business of forgiving and restoring. He's the good shepherd who in the person of his son calls unto sinners like you and me and says, Come, come unto me, all of you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I ask you this morning, Have you been struggling with a besetting sin? That's kind of an old-fashioned way to talk about a sin that's sort of a pattern that maybe even could be viewed in some respects as an addiction. Have you been studying, struggling with a besetting sin, an addiction? Have you uh, lost your temper? Have you flown off the handle once again? Have you treated your spouse or your children with unkindness? Have you been dishonest with another brother or sister in this church? Have you been careless with the stewardship of your finances? Have you been negligent in your own personal devotions, your church attendance, or your service to God? I can't answer those questions for you. But I can tell you this. I've been guilty of those sins and even of more. Even as a guy who's been a believer now for over 30 years, I have to tell you, I've not got beyond verse 176 of Psalm 119. I still have to, at times, confess, Lord, I've gone astray. Seek your servant, Lord, for I haven't forgotten you and your commandments. And I suspect that your experience, if you're a child of God here today, is very much the same. And if that does describe you, I want to invite you to the throne of grace. I want to remind you of the promise in 1 John 1.9, where it says, John speaking to fellow Christians, if we keep confessing our sin, he's using the present tense, ongoing action, if we are in a pattern of confessing our sins, he says God is faithful and just. Notice he doesn't say God's faithful and merciful, though that's true, but he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Why do you think he says faithful and just? Because he's thinking of the gospel. He's thinking about the fact that Jesus died for our sins. Jesus satisfied God's righteous expectations. Jesus is now our righteousness, and therefore God is faithful to his promise, and he's just. Because Jesus paid it all, and all to Jesus we owe. And as long as we keep confessing our sins, God will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of every unrighteous deed. And so, dear brother, sister, go to the throne of grace. Make this kind of confession before the Lord, and remember that you're still God's servant, and he is delighted to give you the grace that you need. And I would even say this, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, 
this psalm has a message for you, and it's this. God is willing. In fact, I would even say God is wanting to show you grace and mercy if you'll confess your sins to him. Why? Well, because the Bible tells us that God so loved the world, the sinful world, humanity and rebellion against him. God yet loved that world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, the Apostle Paul says, we will be saved. This day, this moment, if you're not a Christian, God can make you his servant. If you cry to him for mercy, humbly confess your sin, and look to Jesus as the Savior. Because you can't pay for your sin. You can't make up for it with good deeds. Only Jesus can atone for the debt that you owe. And only his righteousness as a robe will suffice to give you entrance into God's presence and favor forevermore. May God be pleased to bless our meditation on his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your graciousness and kindness to us. We don't deserve the least of your mercies. We're amazed that you're so patient and long-suffering with us. And yet the words of the psalmist encourage us this morning to look to you for more grace, to regularly confess our sins, to cry out on an ongoing basis for your restoring power. And Lord God, to praise you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, for you are our God and our Savior. And Lord, we pray not only that our faith and relationship with you this morning would be strengthened, but we pray that if there's somebody here who does not yet know you savingly, that that person for the first time would truly confess his or her sin, looking to Jesus alone for salvation. In his name we pray, amen.